Vincent Werbeck's Derby. Do you ever feel like your life is out of control? If I think back about 20 years ago, maybe just under 20 years ago, I was working in a cinema and some friends of mine headed off to university and a relationship I was in at the time ended, not of my choosing. And the vicar of my church, who I knew really well, he left and went off to another church. And and as I say, I was working in the cinema and my job changed from being a kind of a person that did the popcorn to somebody that did the rotors for the people that did the popcorn. I wandered around a suit thinking I was important. I wasn't really. Um, but then the relationship kind of changes with those people. And suddenly I found the kind of the things that made up my life had all changed. And I felt like my life was actually quite out of control. And in many ways, compared to many people, it's not a big deal. But at that point in time, I thought, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going on. Maybe you don't feel like your life is out of control. Maybe you're actually on the other side of things. Maybe you're somebody who's got it very together. You take the ball by the horns. You don't let life pass you by. You are in very in control of what you're doing. On Monday and Tuesday this week, a few of us went over to Birmingham to the leadership conference, and we were really pleased. We got 30-something people from Werbs came, and it was amazing. But one of the things I struggle with sometimes about leadership conferences is you get people who are very high profile, they're CEOs of banks or they're directors of movies or they are kind of been incredible in the charity world or whatever they're doing. And it feels like their lives are completely together and they're very driven people and they're very in control and they don't let life pass them by at all. Now thankfully this year it wasn't like that. We heard lots about their vulnerabilities as well. But you've got these two sets of things. Sometimes your life feels out of control and other times you're very much in control. And I want to read to us um, from the next bit of Joseph. So if you've got a Bible uh, or a Bible app on your phone, can I encourage you to turn to Genesis 39. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, we've got some by the door and we love to give away Bibles. We don't just give away coffee, we give away Bibles um, because we believe that reading this thing will change your life. So turn to Genesis 39. If you struggle to navigate your way around, if you're new to the book, uh, there's always a contents page. shows you where the books are. The big number is the chapter. The little number is the verses. So we're going to kick off at Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph, who had been taken down to Egypt, had Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household, and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. 
My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How, could, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard this story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Last week, Phil spoke about the beginning bit of the story of Joseph, and he highlighted three kind of choices. He spoke about choice anxiety, and so often we've got loads of things in front of us, and we just don't know what to choose. And Phil was saying, choose God's dreams. He said, choose long-term, not short-term, and choose knowing that God is in control. And today we're going to look at the next section of Joseph. But just as a reminder to you, or maybe you're new to church this evening, maybe somebody's dragged you along, maybe you found yourself in here, that actually the Bible is made up of 66 books, and it's lots of different sorts of writing. So you've got letters in there, you've got poems in there, you've got prophecy in there, you've got history in there. But it's basically telling one big story. And you start with creation, God creating the world. You go then to the fall where human beings fall away from God. You then have Israel, which is kind of God's relationship with his people, this nation. Then have the person of Jesus. Then you have the church. That's the bit of the story we live in now. And then you have eternity, new creation. And that's the big story in kind of six big chapters. And um, you may not be able to read the writing, but that's kind of what I'm trying to represent. And the story of Joseph, if you want to know where it comes in the big story, comes about there, where the arrow is, right at the beginning of this Israel bit of the story. So if you want to know where kind of it's sitting, that's where it is. And last week we found out about Joseph being a dreamer. God kind of gave him dreams and then he tactlessly shared them with his family about them bowing down to him. They're obviously not very impressed and they capture him and they tell his dad that he's died and they were going to kill him and then they sell him off into slavery. And that's where we pick up today. But before we carry on, I want to kind of say we're going to be thinking about choices and how we make good ones particularly. And I think that there are two extremes that we can fall into in terms of how we make choices or how we think about choices. And the first of those is to think we're somebody who has complete unhindered freedom. 
And often when we talk in church, we think of freedom as being a good thing. And as Jesus defines it, it is. But there's a kind of freedom that says, I'm the boss of my life. I'm kind of independent. I'm autonomous. I can just get on and do whatever I like. And today we see Joseph being bought by Potiphar, who's an official for Pharaoh. But whilst a long way from home, the story tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. And because of that, Joseph rises up the pecking order, and he's second only to Potiphar. In fact, we find out that Potiphar did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. And I just got this image of kind of Potiphar sitting back in one of those lazy boy chairs while Joseph runs around looking after all of the stuff, because he's just like, it's okay, it's in Joseph's hands. But Joseph is in a home he didn't choose. He's in a country he didn't choose, doing a job he hadn't chosen. Now sometimes when we hear people talking about the Bible, about the scriptures, we, they talk about as if the Bible is effectively about us. It's kind of God's plan for our lives. It's about giving us answers, about helping us to know God. And some of those things are in there, but actually, firstly, this book is about God. It's his story. And we see this in the beginning of this section of Joseph. It says the Lord was with Joseph, verse 1. The Lord was with him, verse 3. The Lord gave him success, verse 3. The Lord blessed his household, verse 5. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had. This is a story about the Lord. And Joseph gets to play a part in it. It's not his story, it's God's story. And Joseph fits into that. Now it may surprise you, but I'm not really a poetry kind of guy. I'm the sort of person that if I come to a poem in a book, and I don't very often read fiction to my shame, but if I do read fiction and a poem comes up, I jump over that and then carry on with the narrative. But I know for some people here, poems are important things. And it says more about me and my lack of depth that I don't really read them. But there is one poem I do know some of, and it gets shared around on kind of social media, or it gets read at important things, and it's a poem which Nelson Mandela read to his fellow prison mates. It's a poem called Invictus, and at the end of it, it's written by a guy called William Ernest Henley, Um, we've got a little picture of him, and um, there are certain members of our congregation I feel he looks similar to, but I won't say who. Um, But he says at the end of this poem, he says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And it's a stirring poem. You can see why it resonates with people. But Joseph is neither captain nor master. He's not in control of his fate or his soul. And last week, Phil reminded us that God is in control. And the beginning of this story shows us, the section today, shows us again, the Lord is ultimately sovereign. Now, it may be that you're new to church today. It may be that uh, you're sitting there in your chair going, well, I'm my own boss. I make my own decisions. I get to choose what I want to do. I get to decide what happens to me. The writer Malcolm Gladwell, and I don't think he's a Christian, although he may have come to faith in Jesus. I'm not sure. In his book Outliers, I've got a little picture of him, um, it says, the people who stand before kings may look like they did it all by themselves. But in fact, they are invariably the beneficiaries of hidden advantages and extraordinary opportunities and cultural legacies. It makes a difference where and when we grow up. So basically he's saying nobody really gets there on on their own. And he goes through lots and lots of examples of that, from people like Bill Gates to all sorts of others. They were living in the right place at the right time with the right opportunities. And they did work hard, but those things come together. 
And so if you think that actually you're in control, I want to ask you, did you decide where you'd be born? Did you decide who your parents or caregivers would be? Did you decide where you would live as a child? Did you decide what ethnicity you would be? Did you decide what century you would live in? I'd ask you to consider, do you have control over natural disasters or the economy or your family and friends' health? I'd like you to consider maybe even the small things of your day-to-day life. How in control of you are you of getting up every day without fail, every day of the year on time? How good at you are being kind to everybody you meet, every colleague that you work with, every person in your home, every friend that you have? Are you, do you always live up to your own standards? And then even more, do you always live up to God's standards, which I imagine are somewhat more challenging? And I would hazard a guess that actually you're not in control of many of those things at all. Yet most of us, we want control, don't we? We want to be able to say, it's my life and I want to do what I want to do. But I want to point out that ultimately, if we're followers in the way of Jesus, we need to acknowledge that the story is not about us. It's about him. And we fit into God's story. We don't fit him into ours. And so that's one danger we can fall into, the kind of the freedom danger. It's all about me. But the story continues, doesn't it? Joseph is at the top of his kind of slave game, if you like. And we find out that he's well-built and handsome. Now, I don't know who you think of when you think of somebody that's well-built and handsome. Maybe you think of, let's keep clicking on the, yeah, next one. Maybe you think of Harry Styles. He had a Interesting outfit quite recently. The papers went a bit mad on it. Maybe if you're a little bit more mature, you might quite like the next guy. Tom Hardy is a good-looking guy. Um, Or maybe you might even like the next one, our very own Phil Mann. Um, Well-built and handsome. Think of Joseph in those kind of ways. And Joseph finds himself running into a very early version of what we might today call a cougar. Potiphar's wife. But to be more serious than that, actually, Potiphar's wife, she, ha- she abuses her power and she puts Joseph into a very difficult situation. And I don't know whether Joseph finds her attractive, but I imagine he probably did. But what we do know is that he says no to her advances. He's very clear about his reasons. He says, look, Potiphar has treated me really well. He's given me power and responsibility. In fact, I've got everything. The only thing he's withheld from me is you. I get to look after everything else. Why would I abuse that? Does it remind you of any other stories in the scriptures? Can eat from any tree, apart from just one tree. Joseph is clear that if he effectively ate from that tree, it was a wicked thing and it was a sin against God. And so often the Bible stories, they help us look back And they help us look forward. And this bit of the story looks back to Adam and Eve, who gave in to temptation. They kind of ate the forbidden fruit. But it also looks forward to Jesus, the true and better Joseph, who as well, when he came to temptation in the garden to do a different way, says, your way, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Joseph looks forward to Jesus. Now, in our day and age, many people inside and outside the church think that we as church are obsessed with sex and sexual sin. 
They think we talk about it all the time. And actually, I very rarely hear it preached about, to be honest. But what they say is they say, what you need to care about, don't worry about that. That doesn't matter. But what you do need to care about is the poor and the hurting and the broken and the marginalized. That's what you need to worry about. And of course, they're right. We do. We just heard about refugees. Sign up on Tuesday. Go and find out how to minister to the people that are coming new to our city. Really, really important we do that. But actually, God is not just concerned about justice in that way. He's concerned about his justice, his righteousness. And therefore, he's concerned about purity in our lives. And that doesn't sit quite so well in our current culture. But Joseph is clear that if he stepped outside God's rule for relationships, it would be a wicked thing and sinning against God. And so, Joseph has been... Lots of things have happened to him that are outside of his control. But suddenly, like a goalkeeper, who's the kind of the, all the action has been going on at the other end of the pitch, and he's kind of sitting there waiting around going, not much to do, I, you know, I there's not much I can do, I can't change anything. Suddenly he has to spring into action, and he has to make a choice. And not just once, because she comes to him again and again. Joseph, will you come to bed with me? Come on, Joseph, will you come to bed with me? No. No, no. He has to keep saying no. And so the first danger of kind of, we said about his total freedom. The reverse is simply letting circumstances happen to it. Is that kind of, if you've got freedom, it's kind of fatalism. It's thinking that actually we've got no power to influence the future or indeed our own actions. You see, Joseph could have, oh, this has come along. Oh, you know, everything happens for a reason. I might as well just take advantage of this. No, he has to make a clear choice. And he says no, he refuses, and then he's very clever, he refuses even to be with her. Because he knows, obviously, it gets dangerous. And I don't know, it may be for you that it's not sexual sin is an area you struggle. It could be an area of gossip if you're with particular people. It could be issues of the way that you give or don't give. It could be that actually um, all kinds of areas of your life where you think, do you know what, I can't put myself in that situation. I don't know what you struggle with. But if you think through your life, think actually, think about where your weak spots are. And what would it look like for you to say no, to keep saying no, and then not put yourself, not put ourselves in those situations. And then, she's very clever, isn't she? Potiphar's wife. She waits for an opportune time when nobody's around and he's attending his duties. Comes to him again and he chooses to run. And it says in the scriptures that resist the enemy and he'll flee from you. But sometimes, like Joseph, we have to flee ourselves. But he leaves his cloak behind. He has to make a quick decision. You see, we can't just be passive. We can't just be people that let life happen to us. Many years ago, I was involved in a mission to London for about a week. There was a thing called Soul in the City. And we kind of went around and we did lots of good things and cleaned walls and played basketball with people and all that sort of stuff. And I remember one of the young guys who was on our team, he, bless him, he, he was quite young, uh, but he lived at home with his parents. And there's nothing wrong with that, but he was waiting for the Lord to tell him what to do. But he hadn't just been waiting for a few weeks, he'd been waiting for months and months and months, waiting for God to tell him to do something. There's nothing wrong with waiting on God, don't hear me wrong. But actually his parents were paying for him to live and he was just sitting there at home not getting on on with anything at all. He's been completely passive. Now hear me, if you're struggling with life, mental health issues, 
physical health issues and that's why you're not able to do things. Don't take that as a rebuke. But sometimes we can be overly passive and actually have to make a choice. We have to get up and we have to get on, not allowing life just to kind of hit us. So, as followers of Jesus, we neither have complete freedom in the way the world would think about it, but also we can't just fall into kind of passive fatalism. So coming back to focus on choices. How does Joseph make godly and wise choices in this story? And then, in turn, how do we? Well, Joseph keeps God front and central. He recognises that God is sovereign. But he's also aware that when the time comes and he has to make a choice, he has to go for it. But you notice that when he does make that choice to live for God, to do the right thing, to not sin against the Lord doesn't actually end very well for him. He doesn't end up kind of even more blessed and even more. And Potiphar goes, that's incredible. Thank you for not sleeping with my wife. He ends up in prison. And sometimes, I want you to hear this really clearly. If you switched off, I want you to hear this. Sometimes when we make decisions to live for Jesus, actually life will get worse. Sometimes when we just make decisions to live for Jesus, life will get worse. And that's really, really hard. Now, we know how the story ends, new creation. It will all be wonderful in the end. But in the short term, it may be painful because it was painful for Joseph. And it does work all right for him in the end. But it may be painful in the short term. So how do we make wise choices? Well, all of us are having our consciences, our opinions formed by life around us. We keep clicking on. Oh, there we go. Now, most of us are not walking through Times Square very much. Most of us walk through Sadler Gate, or we walk into the Into. But actually, as we walk into the Into, you see posters here. You see shop windows advertising particular lifestyles. If you get this phone, isn't it going to be incredible? If you wear these clothes, aren't you going to be incredibly attractive to people? If you kind of buy this thing, (coughs) won't you look successful? We pick up our phones, the adverts pop up. We look at our Instagrams, we see other people's lifestyles. When we open our newspapers, we see particular things written there. When we watch TV shows, we see particular lives portrayed. And all of these things are forming us and shaping us. And we don't even realise it. And then we come together for an hour and a half on a Sunday and expect that to be enough to shape us, to reorientate ourselves back to Jesus. I mean, it's one of the reasons we do do it. We do come together. We don't just sit and listen to talks on our phone. We do come together for that reason. But we need more than just an hour and a half. We need more, not less. So I encourage us, keep coming together. Keep meeting together. Keep kind of encouraging one another. Keep gently stirring one another. Keep saying, do you know, ask me difficult questions about my life. Ask me questions about where you think might be my weak spot. In recent months, I've been hearing and reading lots about the idea of rhythm and habit. Ideas that kind of, we are what we love and we become what we do. Does that make sense? We are what we love and we become what we do. And Jesus, following Jesus at its core is not fundamentally about obeying rules. About a relationship with Jesus in response to what he's done for us, in dying for us on the cross and rising to new life. We respond to what he's done for us. But actually, Joseph practices saying no again and again and again to Potiphar's wife. And then when the moment comes and there's nobody else there, he can run away. Because he's had a habit of saying no again and again. 
And actually, we need to be people who build good habits. We become more Jesus-like by doing those habits. So it's, it's really simple, actually, the practical application of this evening. We have to be people that listen to God. Joseph is a dreamer. He hears God speaking to him through dreams. He hears interpretations of dreams. Interestingly, Joseph doesn't seem to read the scriptures, does he? I was sitting there going, why, do, why doesn't Joseph read the scriptures? Well, because he's in Genesis 39 and there were no scriptures at that point. He was going to become the scriptures. But actually, we're in a better place than Joseph because we've had Jesus and we've got the Bible to read. And you see, we need to be people of the story. We need to know the story. We need to know the story. We need to live out the story. And so often in our tradition, there's a danger that we show up and we enjoy the music and we enjoy the coffee, but we don't become people of the book because actually, well, it takes a bit of effort and there's something good on Netflix and I'm scrolling my Instagram. You know, I've got enough to, I've had so many people say to me, I don't have enough time to read the Bible and I just don't believe it. I really don't. We can listen to it on the way to work. We can download it onto our phones. I can say to Alexa, Alexa, open the Bible app, read me Philippians. And I can just lay there and have it read to me in a very posh English voice or a slightly deep American voice, depending on what you want. I mean, there's choices out there, but it's free. We live in an age where we've got the Bible for free in all sorts of different mediums. So whether you're not a reader and you want to listen to it, um, whatever you want to do. But I want to recommend the Bible in one year. Lots of people use this. I've used it in the past. Got kind of, you can listen to it, you can read it, updates every day. If you can't do the whole thing, just read the New Testament one to begin with. Like, just get started and do it. We need to be people that read it, know it, live it, get into the Bible. Um, we hear it again and again, but just do it, in the words of Nike, I guess. Um, what else do we need to do? We need to be people of prayer. Joseph kind of prays to God later on and he asks God for interpretation. And actually, yes, we've got the scriptures, but we need to be people that know and hear the voice of God. And at Werberg's on Thursday night, we got together for This Is Us and Phil and I did a kind of funny demonstration at the front of how you might pray for people. But actually, one of the things we need to do as we pray for people is say, do you know, I think God might be saying, sometimes we get a kind of a word or a picture or an image. We need to be people that begin to recognize the voice of God. And if you want to come and join us, we pray before the service every week at about half past five. We would love people to come and pray for the service, to pray God's blessing on the service, and to be actively listening, going, God, what have you got for me? What have you got for the congregation? You're welcome to come and pray. We'd love to see people coming and praying before the service. Maybe you struggle with praying out loud. Maybe you don't know you're new to this, or you just get nervous in front of people. Don't worry about religious language. It's talking to your friend with your other friends in front of Jesus. Nobody's kind of marking off your theology as you pray. Nobody's kind of thinking, oh, that person didn't talk about this thing. Or just, you, you learn to pray as you do it. Can I encourage you to get together? Pick somebody, one, two people, meet together every few weeks. If you're somebody that travels, Skype people. I've got a friend I Skype in Liverpool. Every couple of weeks we chat on Skype and we pray for one another. Meet up, have coffee, pray and bear. Bless bear with your, your money, but bless them as you pray in there or, or, or other coffee shops are available. Um, but be people that pray. It's really easy, isn't it? Read your Bible, pray every day if you want to grow. I mean, it's kind of been saying it for ages, but it's, I know we find it hard to do it. And if we're going to make wise choices, we need to know the story and we need to hear God's voice. 